like the scene in John chapter 6 when Jesus preached hard truths and the people fled. And it was but a remnant that remained and Jesus looked at them and said, are you going to, to leave too? And Peter says, to where shall we go? You have the words of life. Lord, that is what we need right now, words of life. Speak, Lord, and give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. If you're using the Bible in your row, this passage will be on uh, the bottom of page 1028, uh, top of 129. Uh, there are generally two types of preachers that preach from Revelation. Some are faithful and some are crazy. And I will leave it to you to determine which category I fit into. This is our second week now looking at the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. These are intimately personal letters from the Lord Jesus to his church, and he's showing them that he keeps a very close eye on his church, not as a policeman or an inspector who is looking to find things that are wrong, but as a gardener who's pulling weeds, who's looking for disease, who, who's doing everything he can to nurture life. And today we're going to read the words of life to the church in Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who came, uh, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich and the slander of those who say that they're Jews and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's an old saying that goes like this, don't believe everything you hear and only half of what you see. Well, this was well illustrated uh, a few years ago in an advertisement for a TV, TV station that went like this. There was a a woman sitting in a car and she's casually minding her own business and the camera is zoomed in on her. And a man comes out of the blue in a, in a haste of frenzy, and he, he, he grabs her out of the car. Not a word is spoken. He, he pulls her by the arm and rips her out. And it looks as though he's attacking her, and you can imagine the terror that this woman's experiencing. And then the camera zooms out, and you see something that you had not been aware of, and she had not been aware of, that the car was on fire. And so this man that came out, and it appeared was doing great harm to her, was actually saving your life and uh, saving her life and the ad finishes you need the bigger picture channel 10 gives you the bigger picture well this passage zoomed in it appears to be a miserable situation the men and women of smyrna are being persecuted and some are going to die soon but that's only part of the story we need the bigger picture the bigger picture is that we serve a God who takes terrible situations and hard provinces, providences and he turns them into great graces. In God's economy, evil is used for good, sadness becomes joy, and suffering is transformed into glory. This passage is here to give us the bigger picture. That's what we're going to see with the church at Smyrna now, this letter, of the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, this is probably the most positive of the letters. And by that, I mean the Lord Jesus has nothing corrective to say to the church at Smyrna. Last week, we saw it with the church at Ephesus. He commended several things about them, and he says, but this I hold against you. You've lost your first love. You've left it. You've abandoned it. You no longer love Jesus as you once did. But with the church at Smyrna, there is no warning. It is all commendation. And that's kind of surprising because of all the churches, all seven, the circumstances at Smyrna were perhaps the most difficult. 
they were being persecuted, they were impoverished, and they're being slandered all over the city. And superficially, one might think, this is a terrible situation. You might even be tempted to think, maybe God is angry with them if they're going through all this stuff. Maybe God is indifferent and doesn't care. But what we see in this letter is that behind the scenes, the bigger picture is that God is working all of these things, even these miserable things, for their good. You see, this passage reminds us that we serve a God who takes the difficulties and afflictions of our life and he turns them into great blessings. As we look at this passage, there were four things that I wrote down as I was working through the passage and I've organized the sermon around them. You'll find them. We've got your outline listed in the bulletin so you can follow along there. But first is persecution. Second is presence. Third is is prize, and fourth is perspective. Let's start with persecution. To get this, we need some understanding of who Smyrna was. It's, it's modern-day Izmir in Turkey. It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It had a beautiful harbor and a, a tremendous export trade. It, it was really the pride of Asia Minor. It was a very, very, very wealthy city made up predominantly of Greeks and Jews. It's believed to be the birthplace of Homer, the greatest of the Greek poets, had magnificent architecture, and the skyline, it was symmetrical, and it gave the appearance of a crown, and so the nickname of Smyrna was the crown of Smyrna. Now, more relevant was the, the, the political and spiritual climate of, of Smyrna, which was really one and the same thing. In, in 26 AD, Smyrna dedicated a temple to the emperor Tiberius, and so they boasted of being the first city to promote formal emperor worship. Now, some of that emperor worship was sincere. They really did believe the emperor was divine, but there were ulterior motives. By ingratiating themselves to Roman leadership, they were held in special favor uh, by the government. It doesn't mean other religions couldn't exist in Smyrna. It just means that observers at least had to acknowledge the divinity of the emperor. That's no big deal, right? Worship whoever, worship whatever you want to, as long as you don't worship exclusively. That was very compatible with, with Roman pluralistic culture. Uh, every way can be right as long as you don't say one way is the only right way. And, and even some of the Jews were willing to accommodate, and they professed to worship Yahweh, but they also would bow before the emperor. No big deal, right? Except that this command that the emperor be worshipped clashed with the Christian gospel. And these Smyrnan Christians refused to bow the knee to the emperor. And so they quickly became seen as enemies of the people and the state. We don't know much about the background of these Smyrnan Christians. The, the church may have been started by some who were present at Pentecost. Uh, it may have been started by Paul on his third missionary journey. It may have been started as an evangelistic, a church planting effort from Ephesus. We, we really don't know, but what we do know is that life for believers at Smyrna was fraught with suffering. Suffering's no fun, is it? But our Lord is never blind to the suffering of his children. He's keenly aware, and his eye is upon everything that they're going through. And we see that in verse 9. He says, I know, I know your tribulation. That's the first thing. He, he says, I, I, I know your tribulation. That word tribulation means difficulty or trouble that causes great pressure and angst. Now, many Christians today, when they think of tribulation, they think of uh, events tied to the end times. But in the first century, the term tribulation really was synonymous with persecution. In fact, in Acts eleven nineteen, the same word is translated there, not tribulation, but persecution. And so Jesus is saying, I know your persecution. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say, if you just follow Jesus, if you just believe in Jesus, then all of life will go well for you. And then suffering comes, and it catches them totally off guard. 
Have you ever seen people go through that? They thought, I, I'm doing what I should do. I'm following Jesus. Life should, should get better, right? I should be prospering. Why is life so hard? I, I've seen that many, many times. Now, thankfully, that wasn't the case for men and women of Smyrna. They were prepared for what they were going to go through. They knew the words of Jesus. Look, look with me at Matthew 10 for a moment. This is just a, a sample of the type of thing that the Lord Jesus said that for whatever reason, we don't talk about a whole lot today, but they would have been very, very familiar with passages like this. If you're looking at Matthew 10 and you're using the English Standard Version Bible, you might have a, a heading there right above verse 16 that says persecution will come. Now, those are not inspired headings. They're added by the editor just to help us understand what's going on, but that whole servant, is, uh, that whole passage is about persecution. And look at verse 21, Matthew 10, verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children, children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The scriptures never offer the gospel detached from an expectation that we will suffer for the gospel. If you're looking for easy life and comfortable religion, I do not recommend Christianity to you. You think of what Paul was told when he was converted. Follow Jesus and all life will go well. You'll have health and wealth and prosperity. No, that's not actually what he was told. Acts 9.16 this is how the Lord evangelized Paul's heart. Just, just think about this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is hard for 21st century Christians to acknowledge, but Christianity, to be a Christian, historically has meant to suffer. That's what these Smyrnan Christians understood. If I follow Christ... I'm going to be persecuted. It was a daily reality for these brothers and sisters. You know, this is a reminder that the more we seek to please Christ and to live for Him, the more it will antagonize and infuriate the world around us. If we, have, if we just put on a Christian veneer, but deep down we're just worldly people, we may win the world's approval for a time. But we cannot expect the world to pat us on the back if we are being faithful Christian witnesses. The more we become like Christ, the more dissonance there will be between our life and the world. And so Jesus here acknowledges their tribulation. And he says, this is not unexpected, but you're enduring under it faithfully. And then second, he acknowledges their poverty. Smyrna was, according to many historians, one of the wealthiest cities in the world at the time, and there are historical records that the Jews of Smyrna were particularly wealthy. And amidst all of that tremendous opulence of Smyrna, the Christians there were exceedingly poor. Many of them lost jobs as punishment for refusing to bow to the emperor. Business owners suffered because their Jewish and pagan neighbors took business elsewhere, and even those who might not have had a personal animus against Christians, they knew it just wasn't good to be associated with them. And, and so they're poor. Now, the Lord Jesus does give a caveat, and it's a very important caveat that we're going to come back to in a moment. He says, though you are rich, but, but Material speaking, financially speaking, they're, they're a poor people because of their profession of faith. And then Jesus, third, he, he says, I know you're being slandered publicly. That's what he means in verse 9 when he says, the slander of those who say they're Jews and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These would have been brothers and sisters, in a sense, uh, in the Jewish world. These, uh, if some of these believers, these, these converted Christians, if they had been Jews before, this may have been their family members. But one thing we know from this passage is that many of the Jews turned against the Christians, and they were leading the vanguard in persecuting them and slandering them. Now, 
Jesus says there, they say they're Jews and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's not anything new. There are other places where the New Testament talks about people who, in terms of heritage, were Jewish, but in terms of their beliefs, their beliefs were completely at odds with what true Judaism believed. True Judaism pointed to the Lord Jesus, and that's why in John 8, Jesus is talking to some of the Jews, and they they make reference to their father Abraham. Don't you know who we are? We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were sons of Abraham, you would do the works that Abraham did. In other words, if you were sons of Abraham, you would believe in me. And so when Jesus says here they're not true Jews, he's saying maybe in their heritage they are, but in their beliefs they deny Judaism. That's why he denied true Judaism, which is fulfilled in Christianity. That's why he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now, let me ask you, have you ever been slandered publicly for your faith? Happened all the time in the first century. They, some of it was just ridiculous. Oftentimes, it was, it was just without grounds. So, for example, because Christians believe that in the Lord's Supper, we're feasting spiritually on the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, early Christians were accused of being cannibals. Because the early Christians called each other brother and sister, and there were marriages among those spiritual brothers and sisters, they were accused of being incestuous. And they were scapegoats when anything bad happened in, in the community. They were blamed for it. So in 64 AD, when Rome burned, Nero blamed the Christians, even though Nero was probably responsible for the fire. They, they were easy scapegoats. To be a Christian in the first century was to subject yourself to constant slander. Now, I think of those three forms uh, of, of suffering, of persecution, of poverty, and of slander, slander probably seems the most benign, doesn't it? You know, we teach our children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Is that one true? <laughs> All of us know the pain of someone slandering us, talking about us behind our backs. It does hurt. And a lot of times, Christians feel the pressure of that and are tempted to try to reconcile what we believe with what the world believes in order that the world would not think badly of us. Have you ever felt that temptation? You, you know that you're speaking to someone who is at, uh, what they believe is at odds with, with what you know the Scriptures teach? Have you ever felt the temptation to sort of moderate or even change what you believe in hopes that it will win the world's approval? You know those maps at the mall where you can see all the stores laid out in one place and, and, and it, you might see a star that says, you are here? If this were a map and it showed persecution, poverty, slander, right under slander, If you and I are looking at that map, there'd be a star that says, you are here. This is our world. This is what you and me are facing today in the 21st century. This is is where we feel persecution. It's, It's slander. What are we slandered for? Or what will you be slandered for if you are a faithful Christian today? Praying publicly in Jesus' name. And as a pastor, uh, a lot of times I'll get asked to pray publicly, but sometimes people will say, now, don't pray in Jesus' name. We want to make it inclusive to everyone. You'll be slandered if you believe that God created all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. You believe that? Are you kidding me? Science debunked that 150 years ago, didn't it? No, not at all. In fact, science constantly is bearing witness to that truth, and yet you're not reading about it in the news, are you? You believe life begins in the womb? You believe that those lives that are in the womb will soon be born, either as male or female, and that they are immutably fixed as male or female for their whole earthly life? Are you kidding me? You believe those things? You believe marriage is between one man and one woman? Why are you so narrow and bigoted? You believe that the purpose of educating a child is to make them good citizens and to teach them to love Jesus, not to take them down some obscure journey of self-discovery and identity? 
you narrow bigoted Christians. Friends, you are here. If you hold to the things that Christians have held to for the last 2,000 years, you will be slandered. You cannot hold to any of these distinctly Christian views and expect to stay in the world's graces. You have to choose. The world, I wish we, we would really learn this. No matter how much we seek to adapt the gospel for the world's approval, the world will never love us. That's exactly why, we are, why persecution has been the normative experience for Christians for 2,000 years. And actually, persecution is a kind gift to keep us from loving the world. It will not love us back. That's by design. Now, of course, we don't seek out persecution, but you don't have to, do you? Look with me at, at 2 Timothy 3.12. If you're living a godly life, if you're living a Christian life, it will seek you out. You should expect to be slandered. Now, we never want to be slandered just because of our personality. We never want to be the stumbling block. But if we are closely associated with the Lord Jesus and he is working in us and we are living in our lives in conformity with his word, persecution will seek us out. Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what do we do? Well, the ugly truth of, of our human nature is that sometimes the temptation is that we try to avoid being slandered and we try to avoid suffering by compromising the truth. We want to appear respectable. We want to appear inoffensive. We want to appear civilized and intelligent. And so we soften the edges of the gospel. This has been one of the great problems for the church in America we want to have our beliefs, but we're not willing to suffer for them. We crave the approval of the world. So oftentimes, what Christians do is they tweak Christianity or try. Of course, we can't change what the scriptures teach, but try to, to create hybrids of Christianity that make it more palatable to the world. Sometimes we say we're just trying to make it relevant to the world. So we're not going to talk about things like sin and hell and stuff like that. Friends, the gospel is already the most relevant message in the history of the world. You cannot make it more relevant by changing it. And a lot of times what people mean when they want to make the gospel relevant to the world is really we want to compromise on the hard things so that we don't suffer so that the world doesn't think we're nuts. When it comes to persecution, you have to choose, beloved. Do I want the approval of the world or do I want to please Christ? For us, that seems theoretical mostly, doesn't it? For the people of Smyrna, that was a daily choice. Those of you that are familiar with church history, you probably know the name Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the most famous martyrs in the history of the church. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He, he, uh, he lived at Smyrna. Some historians believe he would have been at Smyrna when this letter was initially delivered and read. February of 156 AD, Polycarp, as the bishop of the church, the leader of the church, courageous and bold, had a bullseye on his back. He was arrested, imprisoned, and sentenced to death for refusing to bow to the emperor. He was 86 years old at this point. He was arrested. The officer that was given him, given responsibility of bringing him back to the, uh, to the office of the proconsul said to him on the way, Polycarp, why not just recant? Remember your age, Polycarp. You don't want to go through this. What harm can it do to sacrifice to the emperor? What harm can it do to you, dear ones, to compromise a little bit here and there to try to win the world's approval? He went before the proconsul in the amphitheater, many, many people watching on. He was urged again to recant. 
the proconsul said, Swear, and I will release you. Revile Christ, and you shall go free. Polycarp replied, incredible line, 86 years now I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul says, unless you change your mind, I'll make you be destroyed by fire. And the people cheered, and they added, went and gathered wood for the fire and shouted, burn him. And Polycarp stood by the stake as the fire was lit, and he said, you don't need to tie me to it. And he stood by the stake as they lit the fire underneath him, and here's what he prayed. O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, I thank you that you have thought me worthy this day and this hour to share the cup of Christ among the number of your witnesses. We have to choose between the good graces of the world and glorifying the grace of God. There's no middle ground. That's the first thing, persecution. Second thing in this text, and that is, the Lord Jesus meets us in our suffering. And if you're looking at the outline, that's that word presence. Now, this text applies specifically to persecution, but it's a principle that's true in all suffering. The Lord Jesus is particularly drawn to us and present with us in our suffering. He's never calloused. He's never indifferent towards us, but rather when his children suffer and his eye is upon us, his heart fills with pity towards us. When Jesus says in verse 9, I know your tribulation, he's not saying I've heard about it or I read about it in the newspaper. He's saying I've seen it firsthand. In fact, I've been there before. Nothing you're experiencing is is foreign to what I experienced. I've walked this road before. Do you realize that, dear Christians, you cannot take one step on the road of suffering without seeing the footprints of Jesus Christ before you? He's walked this road before. He can say to you, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know how you're being slandered. I've been there before, and I'm with you now. Such a wonderful, frequent promise in the Scriptures that he's with us in our suffering. Look with me at Isaiah for a moment, Isaiah 41. We're going to sing a version of this shortly. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Turn over two chapters to Isaiah 43. Verse 1, Now the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the rivers, they'll not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. This is not therapeutic talk. This is reality. We have examples of how, the Je- how Jesus has been with people in suffering. You think of the three Hebrew boys that Nebuchadnezzar sent into the furnace, and he looks in there and he sees a fourth with them. It was the Lord Jesus with them in their suffering. Think of the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the New Testament early church in in Acts chapter 7. Stephen's being martyred, and we see Jesus. And every time, other than this, when we see Jesus ascended in heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But with Stephen, he's standing as if to say, Stephen, I see you. I'm with you. And Stephen, soon you will be with me. Oh, Christian, the evil one will attempt to convince you that you have been abandoned in the midst of suffering, but you are not. Even if the whole world abandons you, Christ says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And what happens, the great unexpected surprise when we zoom out the camera a little bit, we find that as we suffer, the presence of Jesus brings us great joy. James, the brother of Jesus, could say, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when facing trials of all kinds, knowing that the trying of your faith builds perseverance. When we seek Christ in our suffering, we find a level of nearness with him that a million years of prosperity cannot provide. Because suffering drives believers to Christ. Now, mind you, it's not that way for everyone. Unbelievers endure suffering and oftentimes are bitter afterwards. But the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. And the same trials that often harden unbelievers tenderize, that they soften the hearts of believers. Think of it like this. Most of us, if we're very honest... We have one hand on Christ and one hand holding on to the world. When we suffer, in a sense, the world quakes. That's the, the language of Hebrews, that it's shaking. And we realize that what we're holding on to is too unstable. And so we, if, we, if we're responding with faith, we take our grip off the world and we grab hold of Jesus Christ with both hands. That's what suffering does for us. It's a great gift to the Christian because we understand the presence of Jesus greater through suffering than through prosperity. This is especially true of suffering for the gospel. It never goes unnoticed by our Lord Jesus. Look with me at Matthew 19. Again, Jesus was never ashamed to tell his servants what it was going to cost them to follow him. Look at verse 29 there, Matthew 19, verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, sometimes people take that to mean economically, that if you give up for Jesus, you'll receive exponentially more in a financial sense than what you gave up. That is utter nonsense. To think that we use Jesus to climb the financial ladder is absolute idolatry. What happens when we suffer and we loosen our grip on this world for Christ's sake, he replaces everything we lose with greater fullness of himself. That's why he says back in verse 9, that kind of interesting line, I know your poverty, though you're rich. You're really rich, you know that, right? The world looks on you and sees, sees paupers, but in Christ, you and I, we're princes and, and princesses, aren't we? We have an incredible inheritance in Christ. Christian, do you get it? You are all so rich, but most of us don't, let, don't know it until the riches of this world are stripped out of our hand and we discover what true riches are, which is the presence of Jesus Christ. All the money in the world cannot compare to increased intimacy with Jesus. And what an unexpected surprise. You suffer the loss of all things and you wind up the richest people on the face of the earth. But isn't that how God works? Look at verse 10. Jesus says the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. <laughs> you know who your cellmate's going to be? It's going to be Jesus. John. John, the apostle, wrote Revelation by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing from exile, the, the emperor Domitian. At this point, he, he had taken, uh, he had become concerned about John and John's influence for the gospel. 
He chose not to kill John, but he sent John to the Isle of Patmos. He knew that the worst thing for a Christian is to be cut off from other believers, to be cut off from Christian worship. And so he sends John over to Patmos. And what happens? Well, if you were to keep reading Revelation 4 and 5, Jesus gave John a glimpse into the greatest worship service any human has ever been able to behold. Satan's devices end up accomplishing God's purposes. And when we suffer with Jesus, we find ourselves with a greater enjoyment of his presence than any thing this world could ever provide. Now third, the prize. Verse 10, be faithful unto death. And I think a, a more literal translation would be keep being faithful unto death. Our Lord may be talking about imminent death due to persecution and martyrdom. He may be talking about a long faithful life where you die of, of natural causes, but the promise is the same in verse 10. I'll give you a crown of life. How does death lead to life? Jesus already answered that in verse 8. Look back at verse 8. To the angel at the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. In Jesus Christ, death has been conquered. It no longer has the final word because Jesus went down into the grave. He took the power of death and he crushed it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he took away death's sting. And Christians still physically die and death still hurts, but the real terror of death is not physical death. It's what we call the first death, physical death. The first death is, puts us at the doorstep of the second death, final judgment. That's what makes men who have never thought of spiritual things one day in their life come to the end of their life and they mourn how they lived and they wonder what will happen with me when I die. And rightly so. Death exists because of sin. And Ephesians 2 says we were all once children of wrath. And after death comes judgment. That's what the scriptures call the second death. First, we die that physical death. Then comes the second death in which we're judged according to our sins. But in the case of Christ here, he died the second death first. Do you realize that? Upon the cross, do you know what was so much, so miserable about the cross? Was it the worst death, physically speaking? Was it the worst death that any humans ever experienced? I, I don't think so. I think there's always more wicked manners of physical death. But upon the cross, Jesus experienced the second death first. He experienced the weight of hell, the fullness of hell, in his soul upon the cross. As he bled, uh, as he sweat drops of blood, as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he looked in the darkness for the face of his Father, and he couldn't see it. That is hell. The second death came upon Jesus first, and he overcame the second death. When death took on Jesus of Nazareth, it bit off more than it could chew. And he took the power of death, and he transformed death into life for Christians. That's why verse 11, the Lord Jesus says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Death is not something Christians ought to be afraid of because the pain, the sting of death has been taken. The way we avoid the second death is to have the second birth, to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, dear ones, have you been born again? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? If you have received the second birth and are trusting in Jesus Christ, then you will not experience the second death. For the Christian around death's corner does not wait a grim reaper who will lock your soul in torment. 
death cannot touch you, but rather it opens your world up to paradise. That's why Polycarp could say, do what you will. I've served this Jesus for 86 years, and you know what's going to happen to me when this fire extinguishes my life? I will see him face to face, the one I have longed for for 86 years. And so for the Christian, when we close our eyes in death, what awaits us is not the second death, but rather a prize, the crown of life. Christ says here, remember this promise when crisis comes, when you're under persecution and in the grip of fear and you're tempted to cave in before a watching world, remember the second death cannot touch you. Physical death is but the processional to your coronation ceremony where you will receive the crown of life. Amen? Amen. Now, Jesus is not saying if you do your part, then you earn the crown of life. He says, I'll give you the crown of life. This is why we worship. This is why we serve Jesus Christ not in hopes that we will earn something, but because of what he has given to us. And in his kindness, the gift of salvation that is ours in him is worthy of everything it may cost us to serve him in this life. A pastor named Ted Donnelly tells the story of a friend that his father had, whose name was Noble. Noble was a millionaire, but had grown up poor, and these two friends, Ted Donnelly's dad and Noble, had been friends since childhood when they were poor. Noble became wealthy, and the two remained best friends. He trusted Ted's father because he knew that was the one man that didn't want anything from him. Well, on one occasion, he accepted Donnelly's father to accept a gift. It was a trip that he had to take over to America from the UK, and he wanted company. And so this was early 1950s. The two traveled on a luxury ocean liner across the Atlantic to the U.S. Then they traveled the country. It was the experience of a lifetime. The trip was so completely the friend, noble's gift and provision that whenever Mr. Donnelly thought of the trip, he didn't think about America. He thought about the kindness of his friend, the generosity of his friend. You and me ought never think of heaven apart from the kindness of Jesus Christ. And when we think of heaven, it ought to, to propel us into worship. In Richard Baxter's words, let deserved be written over the door of hell, but over the door of heaven and life, let it say the free gift. The language of crown of life, it's not unique to this passage, but there's something unique about it. I mentioned Smyrna was the crown of Asia Minor because of its landscape, because of the symmetrical buildings shaped like a crown. In many ways, to gain Smyrna was the pinnacle of the good life, wealth and prosperity, the Roman Empire, indulgence, it could all be theirs if they would just turn away from Christ. It's a lot like what Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness. It's what the world offers you, dear ones, today. It can all be yours if you will just turn away from Jesus. But Jesus says, you want a true crown, a lasting crown? Be faithful. Keep being faithful. Hold on to Jesus even this, when this world tempts you to turn away and compromise. Even when the world threatens persecution and poverty and slander, keep your eyes on the prize, which is the crown of life. Now, doesn't that transform our sufferings? It doesn't take them away in this world, but it certainly changes our perspective. That's the fourth thing I want you to see. Perspective. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. 
be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. That statement, 10 days, you'll have tribulation. There's, there's a lot of debate about numbers and revelation, whether they are literal or figurative. And some, uh, there are certain views that, that any number in revelation must be interpreted literally, and so some people believe this is a literal 10 days certainly possible, but I don't think that's what the Lord Jesus is conveying. I don't think people would be saying, well, it's, it's day nine, I get out tomorrow. Um, I think Jesus is saying it's a matter of perspective. Even if you suffer in this world for 86 years, it's a matter of about 10 days in, uh, relative to eternity. This life is so incredibly brief relative to eternity. Jesus isn't making light of their sufferings. He knows the weight of suffering better than any of us. But relative to eternity, our sufferings are the snap of a finger, aren't they? Look, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. They're 10 days. But the things that are unseen are eternal. You've been on a road trip with children. It's a six-hour road trip. Something wonderful is waiting on the other end of it. You pull out of the driveway. You get uh, right about past Chick-fil-A and Beaufort. And what do you start to hear? Are we there yet? Uh, Are we there yet? And, and that's how suffering feels. Are we there yet? It's been, it's been days of this. It's been months. Maybe it's been years for you. It's all a matter of perspective. If you are living for this world's crown, earthly suffering feels like eternal hell. If you're living for the crown of life that Jesus offers, afflictions become light and momentary. If your perspective is wrong, sufferings feel eternal, don't they? But when we understand what's waiting for us on the other side, it changes our perspective. I I, I want you to imagine receiving notice that you're the long-lost relative of a great king, and that king is about to die. He has no other heirs, and you're told you are the sole heir to the kingdom. And I know all the women in this room have seen this Hallmark movie. There's seven or eight of them with the same theme. I know it because I've watched them with Stephanie. You must go receive your crown. And you'll enjoy all the riches of the kingdom. You've packed your bags, you prepare to leave, and you look outside and say, you know, it's raining. I'm not going to go. Now, that would be utterly foolish, wouldn't it? to pass up a lifetime of riches because of a moment of pain. The Puritan John Trapp had one of my favorite quotes about this. He says, he who rides to be crowned does not think much of a rainy day. It's a matter of perspective. When we understand the crown of life that awaits us and the face of Jesus whom we will see there, our sufferings in this life become very, very brief. In eternity, as we stand in the wonder of the presence of God, we will fully understand that our earthly sufferings were completely unworthy to be compared with the weight of eternal glory. Jesus had no rebuke for the Smyrnans because they were being faithful. They were enduring under persecution. Of the other six churches, five of them receive rebukes because they were living under the curse of complacency. Let me ask you, what's Christ's word to us, dear ones? Dear brothers and sisters, what would the Lord Jesus say? Are we bearing up even under the light weight of slander and persecution in this world, or are we so concerned about what this world thinks, that we're looking for ways to compromise. We're looking for ways to soften the sharp edges of the gospel in hopes that the world will love us. 
Don't fall into spiritual complacency. Don't, don't let the prosperity and relative ease of being a Christian in this world lull you into believing that this world is all that matters. Keep being faithful and fix your eyes upon that crown of life that Jesus himself will give. How do we apply this? One very simple application. Think often of heaven. I fear that many of us do not think enough of heaven, myself included. We long for what we're going to do this week or a vacation that's coming up or a meal, a person we're going to see, but do we think often of heaven? I've seen some of you getting ready to take a trip, and that's all you can think about. That's a good thing. We were designed for that. If you are going to spend eternity in paradise with Jesus, that ought to be the thing that dominates our thoughts, shouldn't it? It ought to be what we think about most. I had a conversation with some men this week. What do you look forward to most about heaven? I would urge you, go home. Make a list of everything you look forward to. I can't wait to meet brothers and sisters who have gone before us. I can't wait to see you. can't wait to see, for you to see me without all this sin. I can't wait for all these things, but you know, more than anything, I cannot wait to see Jesus Christ. I can't wait to see his face, uh, this lamb who is at the center of the throne in heaven who makes all of heaven live, who, whose beauty makes all of heaven sing in perfect harmony. This lamb who, as Samuel Rutherford said, is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. The lamb of God is worthy. And we will see him one day. And you know what? That ought to be the thing that motivates us day after day after day to endure suffering to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, it is not easy to speak of suffering, and we do not take it lightly. We're not dismissive of it. The Lord Jesus certainly understood earthly pain better than any of us. But these light and momentary afflictions are not even worth comparing to what awaits us in heaven. Give us hunger. Give us hunger to see Jesus face to face. We confess that we, at times, we just love the comforts of this world and we love the approval of this world and our hearts get fixed on the wrong place. Our hearts are like a ship in so many ways, ships are designed to be in the water, but when they start to take water on, it's a great danger to them. Our hearts are designed to be in the world, but we're not designed to take on the world. We're designed for heaven. And I pray that you would light in all of our fires a longing that neither persecution, nor poverty, nor slander 